Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And as I read, remember, we're reading God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Sorry, Packers fans, for uh, Luke's callousness earlier, but uh, I'm a Steelers fan, so the 5 o'clock sermon today is going to be really short because they play at 440. Just kidding. I'll never do that, but I'm tempted to, so there's, there's that. Uh, my name's Seth. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm on the teaching team, and right after Luke read the scriptures, he gave this tagline that we're saying every week from now on through the book of Acts, at least. That's made the word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. And we're about to look into a passage here that's really interesting, that's really exciting. And one of the major themes of Acts we see, we see happen in this passage, actually. And it's that when the Spirit falls, the church is united and emboldened as missionaries. So with the Spirit falling is not just about us having these warm, fuzzy, positive experiences, but rather it serves a function that the people of God would be united and bold and faithful witness. And so I'm going to preach through this passage that Luke just read, and we're going to do three things today in this passage. We're going to see that this passage is actually a fulfillment of two major Old Testament stories or motifs. The first one is that we're going to see a new Pentecost happen. The second one is this new Babel happening. And then thirdly, we're going to see the response to that, this um, old message that actually is kind of new, but it's actually it's old, is going to get preached. And so um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go through this passage together and learn from God. All right, will you pray with me one more time? Father, I pray that your spirit is on me, that uh, I can be learning along with my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ here. I pray for people in the room who feel far from you, that the the word would be translated by your spirit and um, Help them in their heart of hearts understand and see your heart for them and that you are drawing them near to yourself. I pray for all of us, Christians and non-Christians, that we can be further shaped into faithful image bearers of you as a result of being here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's kind of where we've been. This is the very beginning of Acts. 
Uh, we just missed Acts chapter 1, and here's kind of the backstory here. God came to earth, that's called Christmas. In case you didn't know that and you missed Christmas, it still happened. God comes to earth, he lives a perfect life, he dies a substitutionary death on the cross, and the day that he dies is actually called Passover. Passover is a Jewish festival that this symbolizes that Jesus is the new slain one. And so Passover happens. Keep that day in your mind. That's day one. After Jesus dies, three days later he rises from the dead. After he rises from the dead, 40 days go by of him training and teaching the disciples. And he's showing them how the Old Testament is fulfilled and what he's doing. And he's teaching them all about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. So day one, Passover, three days, and then 40 days. And then Pentecost, which is actually the passage we're talking about right here, when the day of Pentecost arrived, literally just means 50th day or 50, 50 days. And so if you ever read the Old Testament, there's this thing called the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks is seven weeks, 49. And Pentecost happened the Sabbath day after, seven weeks after Passover. So that's a lot of big words and a lot of numbers. Let me break the math down for you. So 50 days after Passover, the day Jesus died, Pentecost happens. So Jesus, di- Jesus dies, he rises from the dead three days later, that's three 40 days of teaching, that's 43, and then Jesus ascends up into the sky, which is still kind of, I think, one of the craziest passages in Scripture. Like, they're just sitting there, and then he, there he goes. And then the angels come back and say, stop staring off into heaven, he's going to come back as he went. And what's crazy is he, he ascends into the sky right after he says, power is coming not many days from now. So they're going, okay. He floats up in the sky. They're going, okay, well, he's gone. He said it's good. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Power's coming not many days from now. And I want us to kind of have our mind wrapped around in those seven days of what would have happened in the life of the disciples. So Jesus sends in the sky. They said not many days from now, so that's probably like two. Day two happens. They wake up. Nothing's happened yet. So they gather together. They pray. They appoint Matthias. Day three happens, they go, okay, last time he left, he came back on the third day, so maybe today's day three again. They get up all eager and excited on day three. Jesus doesn't come back yet. And they're going, well, this is, I mean, a day like for the Lord is like a thousand years. Maybe this is going to be a very long time. What did he mean? <laughs> like, not many thousands of years. And so there's like this dialogue they must have been happening that's going, wait a minute, one time there's this period of 400 years from the book of Malachi to Jesus came. What if not many days from now is like slang for just keep waiting and I'll come back eventually. Even when Jesus left, like, day four happens. What am I going to do? Day five happens. Day six happens. And so what you see in this passage right here, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they all were together in one place. The question is why? Why are they all together in one place? Because about a thousand years before, multiple times in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were commanded to observe Pentecost, the festival of weeks. And so you can imagine this waiting on God situation that's happening. He said he's coming back. I thought it might have been sooner than it has been. They wake up on the day of Passover, and they go, are we going to observe Pentecost or not? And you can imagine that some of them might have wanted to stay home. I'm not doing this anymore. Imagine some of them did stay home. So they get together to obey in the midst of waiting on God, and suddenly there came the sound from the rushing wind. You can imagine being the guy who stayed home that day. But you know what? If you idiots want to go do Passover, that's great. Jesus said, wait, I'm going to sit right here. And he stops obeying in the midst of waiting. Can you imagine him coming home, and everybody's like, you missed out, it was crazy, there's fire, wind, 
tongues, it was nuts. And the guy goes, I just sat at home and watched Netflix and everybody else had a great time. I can't imagine. It, 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 so before we even really get into this passage here, there's this message that I want us to get. And that's that waiting on God is a theme in Scripture. And a lot of you really might be waiting on something significant. You're trying to have kids, it hasn't come yet. Waiting for that cash to hit, hasn't hit yet. Waiting for that child to come home yet, hasn't come yet. Waiting for God to show up in this way, and he hasn't yet. And the disciples here model for us a really cool thing. And that's that when Jesus promises he's going to show up, we don't get to control when, we don't get to control how, but we do get to control how we respond and wait in obedience in the midst of that waiting. And for a guy like me who has control issues, I hate not being able to manipulate God. <laughs> but he shows up when he wants to. He comes and goes as he pleases. The wind blows where it wants to. And here we see a picture of the wind blowing. And so a question for you and me and us as a church is, when waiting on God, do you have enough faith, even in the midst of not knowing what's next, to continue to obey? Because the disciples did. What if they'd stayed home? What if they chose not to obey? They showed up, and God moved in a really powerful way. I think this is crazy. So this fulfillment here of Pentecost. So imagine with me. So I kind of said this fulfills two stories. The first one is Pentecost. Now, Pentecost in the Jewish tradition is the day of weeks or the festival of weeks. And what it kind of came to remember was this, that the day that Moses went up to Mount Sinai in the Old Testament and he brought down the Ten Commandments. So Pentecost is a time to remember and appreciate and observe when God spoke to Moses and gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. And I want us to understand that that is significant because what that means is that the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falling, is not some arbitrary day, but it's actually God communicating a massive theological message. Now, when I talk about the law of God, most people think moral conformity, be a good person or else. But that's actually a misunderstanding of God's law. The idea of the law is this, that in the beginning, God created people and it was great and it was good. And in their arrogance, they chose to rule under their own law rather than God's law. They said, God gave us one rule. I question that rule. I'll have another rule. And so Adam and Eve, in their arrogance, rebel from God and say, I will create my own, me, Adam, and Eve kingdom, and we'll do things according to our own way. And so that arrogance and that evil spreads amongst their generation and spreads amongst their offspring until the point where the people over the face of the earth are now no longer God-fearing, but they're God-rebelling people. And so God's answer to that problem is he elects a people and he says, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. And he gives them the law, the Torah. These people were blessed to be a blessing. Fellowship with God and Israel was never meant to be a me and Jesus and nobody else deal. It was never supposed to be this inward focus, the Jews just looking at themselves saying, we're the good ones, right? But rather, they were made to be a light to the nations, that God was going to give them the law, the Torah, the instruction is another translation of law, that he was going to say, this is how you're going to be a faithful covenant people to me so that you're a light to the nations. So the law was given as means of shaping and forming a people so that they could be who God created them to be so that they could be a faithful witness to God's character. But what we know from the Old Testament is that they failed, they failed, they failed, and the law does not succeed 
and shaping the people into who they are called to be. Romans 8 says this, one of my favorite verses in the whole scriptures, that what the law has failed to do, Christ Jesus has done here and now. And so the significance here of Pentecost is that a new law is dawning from heaven. Just as Moses went up and came down with the law, so also Jesus went up and ascended and sent the Spirit, sending down and bringing down the new law. That the law of the flesh leads to death, but the law of the Spirit is life and peace, such that the church is now being shaped and equipped by the Spirit to be this faithful witness, this faithful light to the nations in the way that Israel never could have. The empowerment of the Spirit is absolutely doing a new thing in an old way, that the old Pentecost, the law, the way of moral conformity, has failed to create a faithful people to God, but the Spirit now descending on His people is shaping them and empowering them to be the witness they are called to be. Yesterday, I was working at my house from about 10 hours, and I'm trying to do all these things. I don't know how to do them, watching YouTube videos on repeat, starting to say how to hang a microwave, how to hang a microwave, how to hang a microwave. And I ended up like, there's this tool I needed to take off this one bolt, and I didn't really have the right deal. And so I was trying to look through my toolbox, and I was trying to find the right bolt, and I was just getting really frustrated and mad. And so I said, whatever, I'll just use these plumbing wrench, you know, and it's this huge big thing, and I'm trying to get off this little bolt, and I'm cranking this thing, and my wife's saying, just go back to Home Depot, just go back to Home Depot, and I'm going like, no, I can do it, get off me, I'm doing this fine, and I'm getting frustrated because the, the, the thing won't submit to me, and I'm, and eventually I'm going, I'm prying it, and I end up slipping off the bolt, and I pinch my finger, and like, it was like right on that little point that like, if you looked at it now, you'd say, give me a break, Seth, but like, little blood was like, it's going like this, and I had to wipe down my deal, and I yelled in my anger. I didn't scream, because if I screamed, I wouldn't tell you that I screamed, but I yelled in my anger. And I ended up going to Home Depot, buying the right tool, coming back, and I finished what I'd been working on for 20 minutes in about 12 seconds, because it was just, it got it done really easily. And then the best part was, is I went to take that little thing and put it back in my toolbox, and there was the same one that I just couldn't find earlier. <laughs> And so here's, like, the, so here's the, like having the right tool, right? It makes a big difference, saves lots of time. Sometimes you can't even do it if you don't have the right tool. But Israel didn't have the right power, the right tool to accomplish what it meant to be a faithful witness to the nations. They didn't have it. And they could will their way to it. They could try their hardest. They were doing the best they could. But apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, who is shaping a faithful people to be witnesses to a lost generation, you cannot be, a, be used by God. It's, just, it's, it's crazy to me. And a lot of us here in this room, Christians, are waiting for the right tool to come along that once I have that, then I'll be a faithful witness. Once that comes up, once I retire, I'll have plenty of time to be a faithful witness of God's work. Once, once, I, once that next paycheck hits, then I'll, have, I'll be stress-free enough to be able to tell my coworkers about Christ. Once I get that promotion, and I, won't, and I probably won't get fired for sharing the gospel because I'll, I'll be in charge, then I'll be, un, I'll be unashamed of the gospel. And you know what? Once, once my wife is unashamed of the gospel, then I'll be unashamed of the gospel and you're waiting for this right tool that's going to help you and empower you, and maybe I'll read 10 books on apologetics, then I'll know all the answers, and then I'll be, uh, be bold with my faith. 
but that type of thinking for a Christian is like using this plumber's wrench while the right tool's in your tool bag and you're just waiting, I want to be the one to say I did this with this plumber's wrench. The Holy Spirit is the tool that every Christian possesses, possesses and he wants to be used by you to empower you and to mobilize you in a way that helps you participate in God's mission. Do you think you're lacking something that keeps you from participating in God's mission by being a bold, unapologetic to the resurrection of Christ? Because if you're a Christian and you think that, that is demonic. Because you lack nothing. You've been given all things for life and godliness in Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is what's significant here is this new Pentecost happening, this new law. The Spirit is ruling in our hearts so we are now marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And this attractive marking of the Spirit shapes us and empowers us to mission. And if you feel like you're lacking something, if there's something keeping you from engaging in mission, you're either not yet a Christian, so you don't have the Holy Spirit, or you are a Christian, but you've been so grieving and uh, keeping quiet and being ashamed of the Spirit that He's no longer empowering you. I remember when I was 17, I was in high school, and I wanted to share my faith with some of my friends at school, and I'm kind of learning about how people need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, otherwise it's going to go very bad for them. And I remember going to school and talking with my really intellectual speech and debate friends, and trying to tell them about the gospel and just getting tongue-tied and being frustrated and not really having the words to say and going home and literally praying in anger, saying, God, if you want me to be on mission like you tell me you want me to be, you'd better open my mouth with boldness because it's not working and I'm looking stupid and you're looking stupid. So frustrated that I know the gospel, I want to share it, and I'm smart and I know the answers and I just open up... uh, And literally the next day, I went and was able to articulate the gospel in a way that I never had before. And I really think that was because of the pride that I had in my intelligence and reading the books and knowing the Bible and being raised in the church that God wanted to make clear to me that, no, 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 the Spirit empowers for mission, not you. And there is no shot that you can take any credit for the fact that God saves souls, not people. So this passage fulfills Pentecost. One more other here on verse 4. I want to make this point real quick. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues. All. Now, I just shared um, what that meant to uh, be on mission, to be used by God, and some of you might be going like, I'm not interested in being used by God. I'm interested in something else. And here's what's crazy to me, is that we tend to think, in terms of being anointed by the Spirit, think of like leaders in positions of influence. Oh, Seth, anointed. Oh, Josh, did you hear his voice? Anointed. That guy's full of the Spirit. He made me want to sing. Oh, Luke, when he, just even in his announcements, that guy's full of the Spirit, you know? And it's like, and, it, and it's just like you think of these leaders. You think, oh, they are these people. Oh, Peter, Peter's preaching in the next, next week. Peter preaches a sermon next week. That guy is filled with the Holy Spirit. But what the scriptures say here is, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just preachers, not worship leaders, not announcement doers. All. All means all without exception. All 
none withheld. And I hope that whether you end up being a preacher sometime or whether you just preach to yourself in, this, in the mirror and call yourself a preacher, whatever your position is, whether you're greeting at the door, handing out the program, playing in the band, setting up the chairs, raising your kids, foster care and adoption, fill in the blank, whatever you are doing, I hope you recognize that if you're a Christian, you go there as a filled with the Spirit missionary. That if, only, if the only person who's filled with the Holy Spirit is on stage, our church is terrible. If the only person who sings and is led by the Spirit is leading the worship, we have a terrible and healthy church. But every single one of you, if you're a Christian, is filled with the Spirit and is as significant in the mission of God as I am or Luke is or anybody else on stage. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God, no VIP seats at the Lord's table. All. And if you're not interested if you're really not interested in participating in God's mission, really ask yourself, do I believe the gospel? Do I believe that there is the way, the truth, and the life, and I rebelled and sinned against him, and he in his grace reached out and saved my soul? And that there's other people who need that, and that I have it. I think Spurgeon said, if you have no desire in saving souls, you might ask whether you're saved. Ask the Spirit. Use me, send me, equip me, shape me. He wants to use you. Next bit on here. The slide was up there earlier. We can put it back up there. Other tongues. What the heck? That's weird. Can everybody, if you thought that was weird in the first time you read it, raise your hand. That's a little weird. Okay, just fine. So, other tongues. So tongues can mean a couple of things. It basically means glossa or language or literally the organ itself, the tongue. So language or tongue. And here's kind of one distinction I want to lay out so just so we kind of disarm kind of the debate about tongues. I don't want to have it. If you don't know there's a debate about tongues, good for you. Try never to find out about it. Uh, there's a debate and people argue about it and I don't want to argue about it. So first... Um, a guy named Daryl Bach, who's a PhD scholar out of Dallas Theological Seminary, um, we actually hired him as Redemption Church to come out and do an eight-hour training for all the pastors who'd be preaching at all the Redemption congregations. And he gave us, he wrote the scholarly rated number one commentary on the book of Acts. People who are preaching are reading that commentary, and he made this distinction that I really appreciate. He said, in the book of Acts right here, what we see is one-step tongues. Someone speaks and they're speaking miraculously in a different language. Spoken, understood, one step. In other places in Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians, in 2, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul the Apostle writes about tongues as well. He calls that two-step tongues, where someone speaks, it sounds like nonsense, it's interpreted, and then it's understood. That is a separate thing, and I'm going to leave that there, and when we preach the 1 Corinthians sometime in the future, we'll handle it then. This right here in Acts chapter 2 is what we call one-step tongues, that miraculously, by the Spirit, people are speaking in languages that they previously did not know. If Christ rose from the dead, miracles like that shouldn't be that crazy. Right? People, like, when I'm talking to non-Christians, they go like, oh, I would believe you, but like, that's weird. I go, I believe in zombies. That's not more weird. <laughs> so let the, let, the, let the empty tomb of Jesus 
be a bigger problem than this. So that's what tongues is, is people speaking these other languages, which transitions me to the next thing, the second fulfillment. So we talked about Pentecost, New Pentecost. Now we're going to talk about Babel, New Babel. So Babel is a story that happens um, in the first beginning of the scriptures, the book of Genesis. So Adam and Eve rebel in their arrogance. They say, I'll choose my law, not yours. And so over the course of time, that arrogance builds and builds and builds. And God made these people to be image bearers, to show the world his glory. But by Genesis chapter 11, what happens is the humans in their rebellion gather together and say, let us make a name for ourselves. And they start building this big tower so that their name will be made great and so that their glory will shine. God in his mercy will not tolerate people who live for their own glory. Living for your own glory is painful. Living for God's glory is freedom. And God dispenses them and he teaches them and he mixes up their language, which calls that tower then is nicknamed the Tower of Babel. Their language becomes confused so they can no longer conspire together across, against the Lord, but rather they're spread out over the earth and now they speak different languages. In Genesis chapter 12, immediately after the Babel story, God says to Abraham, I will bless you to be a blessing and all the nations, every nation on earth will be blessed in you. So God's plan to reunite the people is through his people. What we see here in Acts 2, 5 is the fulfillment and a foretaste of that fulfillment there. So the people were speaking different languages. They're spread out over the world. And what we see here is the exact opposite thing happens here. Instead of being united, then speaking different languages, here in Acts, 5, in Acts 2, they were speaking different languages, and now they're united in the Spirit. Because when the Spirit falls, He unites the church. Let's read with me Acts 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That word every nation is pantos ethnos. Pan is in like, kind of like, thing like Pangea, like spanning the whole um, ethnos, ethnic group. So it's not like United States and Spain. It's like all the different people groups, these ethnic groups of people, every kind of ethnic group, which is literally what God promised in Genesis 12. There are these Jews in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Kind of foreshadowing is about to be fulfilled. And at the sound, so the mighty rushing wind and fire happens. And there's 120 people in a mansion. And you can imagine in your neighborhood, if there's 120 people crammed in a mansion, you go like, those weird people all gathering together again. And then all of a sudden, like, it shakes and there's wind and there's fire and there's light. And like a good neighbor... I'm going to be there, and I go on over, and I go, what's going on here? I walk in, and there's these people speaking different languages, and the words they say is this, and they were bewildered and amazed and astonished because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. So it was all these Galileans hanging out, and all of a sudden all these diverse neighbors come together under one roof, and they all don't feel left out, but they all feel included. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. And then the next list of places there, kind of essentially what that is, is it's listing places that are in proximity in the perimeter of Jerusalem. So kind of like Mexico, California, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Mexico again. If we said Arizona, and there's people from all around us. That's what this list of people is, is these people from all around us. The whole circle, nobody's left out, no directions left out. We hear them telling in our own tongues. So here's a couple observations on this. 
So the Spirit falls as this beautiful foretaste of the future in which all people will be known. That Revelation 21, when Jesus comes back, we're told that all tongues, all, not all tongues, all division, all, all condescension, all contention will be wiped away and all things will be made new. And the Spirit right now in Acts 2, in this moment, is pouring out as a foretaste of that eventual and future reality such that the church, as it pursues unity and diversity, and as the church breaks down barriers within a society, the church becomes this faithful foretaste of what it will be like in the new creation. Amy Sherman, in her book, Kingdom Calling, has this illustration of pink spoons, like when you go to Baskin-Robbins and you get a sample of the ice cream that is to come. It's a real sample of that ice cream. So also, the church is to be this pink spoon community in which people can come in here and taste and see what's going on, and they should, they don't always, but they should be able to have a real foretaste of what the eventual kingdom of God will look like when all brokenness is wiped away. So a couple things here that we notice in this passage. First, the spirit falls and barriers are broken down. The gospel is contextualized, if you will. That obstacles to belief are eliminated. In this case, by tongues. But people around you who aren't Christians, some of you even here who aren't Christians, have these obstacles to belief. This thing that's getting in the way of me becoming a Christian. You might have had friends you've been trying to share the gospel with for years and years and years, and there's this obstacle to belief. But when the Spirit falls in this tangible way, it removes these obstacles to belief. And just as Jesus came in the flesh, born of a virgin, the Spirit here is coming in and through the people, contextualizing this message within their culture. Can you imagine hearing the Jew, hearing the Galileans speak your language that no Jew had ever spoken before? The Spirit falls and it removes obstacles to belief. One of the things we can do in trying to participate in God's mission is just pray for the non-Christians in our life and pray God eliminate their obstacles to belief. Are they rooted in their comfort? Are they rooted in their idolatry? Are they rooted in their pain? Help me see them and maybe I can help. Secondly, what happens is it's contagious and attractive. The Spirit falls and people from all around come drawing near. Now, they don't all stay near, but they all initially are called in by something crazy that's happening. God is showing up and Christians and non-Christians kind of sense that something weird is happening here. Our hope is that we at Gateway here would be that type of place. That the love amongst one another the Spirit's presence in our worship, the unapologetic preaching of the Scriptures, that it would be this place where the Spirit is evident that God is saving people here, that God is growing people here, that people are loving people here, that this is a different type of place, and that people, non-Christians and non-Christians alike, would say, what's going on there? And they'd want to come. It's hospitality. The question I have is we want Gateway to be a household in which people are drawn because of the fruit of the Spirit being so evident. The question I have for you all, the question I have for myself is are your households that type of place individually? Do people want to be at your house? Is your place, is your house a safe place 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? Are people attracted to your household? Because if we are marked and living by the fruit of the Spirit, it will be. The Spirit is hospitable, even in the way that he speaks multiple languages. So also our households, when they're cloaked in the Spirit, will become places of hospitality. We hear them telling, end of verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Here is where Christianity is distinct from other world religions. So, megaleos to theo. Mega means mighty. These are mighty things God has done. This is a big deal. It's mega. Greatness, great and good deeds. Here's what separates Christianity from other things. Is that the spirit falls and these people are preaching what God is doing in history. What he has done. A lot of times we think about coming to Christ and being filled with the Spirit. That means we give good advice. We help people conform. What we just learned about earlier is that the law was not given as a means of moral conformity. That I'm going to make myself clean and then God's going to love me. That is not the gospel. That is satanic. That nobody makes themselves clean before they come to God. God brings them to himself and then he makes them clean. And we have to understand that when the spirit falls and the gospel is preached, it's not advice and how to be a good person and try harder. That is not gospel. Gospel is God did create the world. Gospel is God has parted the Red Sea. God did free the slaves from Egypt. God did build a boat and separate Noah from the people and save them from their sin. God did appoint David to an inter- throne. God did come to earth. God did live a sinless life. God did die a substitutionary death, and God has risen victoriously. That, are the, that is the mighty works of God. It's not advice. It's not counsel. It's not a good idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not an ethics system. It's a historical reality, and when the Spirit falls, the people see that God has been and continues to work in history here and now. This is Christianity, that the Spirit falls, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Some of you might be here today because you've been doing bad things for a long time, and you think that by coming here today, you're going to start to do good things that'll make up for your bad things. I've been far from God for 10 years. I'll now be good and go to church for 10 years and that'll make me right with him that's not the gospel that's not what we're going to give you from this bible you might be able to get that somewhere else but I pray you never do because what the law has failed to do God has done in the gospel and because the spirit is here we will continue to proclaim the mighty works of God not some self-help nonsense. Verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking said, those idiots are just drunk. So there's two responses to hearing the mighty works of God. Here's what's kind of blew my mind a little bit this week, is that this, the correct response here is questioning. I don't get it. Help me understand. That's the correct response. That's not the response where they respond saying, stop asking questions, have faith. That's not how that's met. It's asking questions, seeking to understand is the right response. 
And a lot of times, some of you might have grown up in church contexts where you felt like you had questions and you were met with kind of this stiff-armed, no, have faith. Now, the reason that happens is because when people ask questions that leaders don't know the answers to, it creates insecurity in them. Because if I don't know the answer to that question, then maybe, I, maybe my faith is weak. And so have grace for the people who responded to your questions with a stiff arm. But at the same time, my hope as a leader, my hope as a pastor, my hope as a Christian is that we would be a place that when people come seeking to understand with questions, no matter how hard they are, that I will either A, know the answer, or B, not know the answer, admit that, and say, let me help you find that answer. Childlike faith is not about not asking questions and believing with naivety. Childlike faith is about trusting that you have a good father who knows everything. Asking lots of questions. The correct response is asking lots of questions. Hopefully you have questions. Hopefully you keep asking them. Hopefully you keep finding answers to them. The wrong response. But others, mocking said, they are drunk. They're filled with new wine. Now this this cut me this week, this mocking thing. And here's why. To laugh at someone, to scorn, to jeer. I don't want to be mocked. I hate it. I want to be taken seriously. I want to be thought of as smart. I want to be intelligent. The other week, I was a while ago visiting with one of my friends, and his friend's friend came over, and then his friend's girlfriend came over with him. So just to be clear, you will not figure out who this is. And she starts telling me, that she believes the earth is flat. And I was like, okay, well, this, you know, like thinking like, if this conversation goes on much longer, I'm going to be very mean to her, and I don't want to do that. And so my, my, I'm thinking like, I'm like, my eyes must have been wide. I'm kind of thinking like, panic, panic, panic. If she thinks that, I probably can't trust her about anything, you know, like. But then I walked away from the conversation. I started to realize and recognize that when I tell people Christ rose from the dead, non-Christians might in their head go like, that guy thinks the earth is flat. That doesn't happen, dude. You're crazy. That the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it's wisdom. I was getting my hair cut the other day, and the barber goes, man, it seems like all the cool pastors go to redemption, and I just loved it so much. I, like, I, it was like someone gave me this drug I never had before. Like, the, the <laughs> approval, the approval was so tangible that I just loved being thought of as cool and good. This person's not a Christian. Like, why do I, like, and I just want to confess that to you, that being approved of, people saying, I like you, people wanting to, like, say that you're cool, like, that is unfortunately a motivator for a lot that I do, and I think that being here has really exposed a lot of that because it's new to me. New people, new faces, lots of first impressions, new city, new neighborhood, fill in the blank, and there's all this opportunity for me to try and seem cool upon first impression rather than be a disciple of Christ on first impression. And if you live your life trying to avoid mockery, you will not live your life serving Jesus. Won't happen. It won't. It's something that I struggle with. When I read this passage even, I think about the non-Christians in my life who go like, give me a break, that stuff doesn't happen. 
and I want to be defensive and think like, there's some verses I want to tell non-Christians about, like love your neighbor. All the non-Christians I know go like, yeah, love your neighbor. But I tell them like, Jesus sent into heaven and sent tongues of fire from the sky. And they go like, flat earth, get out of here. And I just want to, I want to confess that to you, so hopefully we as a church can be okay with confessing those things, that fear of being mocked leads to not following Jesus, period. That sometimes the Spirit moves and does things in weird and, under, and in understandable ways, and that's called serving an infinite, sovereign God who does not ask us for permission. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and we can continue our worship. Holy Spirit, we thank you for shaping us to be the people you want us to be. I pray that we will unapologetically declare your mighty works in history, never content with giving good advice, but always telling people the good news. I pray these next couple moments as we pray, as we respond, that you'll speak to our soul and encourage us in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.